Isn't it a blessing to be able to come together on a Sunday morning such as this and to sing songs about the glory Land way, to appreciate our place in that way and to appreciate so grandly the blessings that go with it, and to sing songs such as about the cross of Jesus Christ. The last song we just sang, of course, brought us to that great interesting message about Jesus being the best friend of all. Now, those songs alone have made it well worth our while to assemble and to gather. But may I suggest for the next few moments as we open the Word of God that we certainly can be blessed as we consider the probation of Christ's will. The lesson today will thus have a bit of a legal consideration because there are matters in this that are very familiar to each of us, but we would wish, of course, to apply the Word of God to our understanding so that we're able to see it from the perspective of the teaching that would benefit us in that way. Wouldn't it be fair to say that surely one of the legal documents that is so often referenced and mentioned in our world, and one that has a great deal of interest to many people, is a person's will. Now, of course, as you give thought to a will, you know that there are many things that might prompt interest in it. Some people are very interested in making sure they get their share of the will of somebody else, either their parents or perhaps someone else. There are others who are, of course, interested in a will for different reasons. Surely fortunes and treasures and possessions and the disposition of sometimes a fair amount of money takes place as a result of the declarations of a person's will. Have you ever thought about the Bible in connection to a will? That'll be our study today specifically the will of Jesus Christ. I realize that we sometimes use that word will in reference to a person's desire, their order, their commandment, and surely there is great force in that thought. But we're going to use the word will today, by and large, in connection to that document that we've just discussed. What happens after the person dies? For that reason, I thought the first slide, the next slide really, will be a development of that legal consideration before we launch into the fullness of the Bible's discussion of it. First of all, let's be a bit more specific what we mean when we talk about a person's will. I've asked your thought to that statement at the top. It is a legally binding document that provides instructions concerning what should be done with a person's money and other possessions once that person dies. Once that person has passed from this life, what is to be done with that which the person owned or that which the person had access to? Now, you and I realize easily that statement corresponds to our understanding of a will. But I've asked you to note a few more truths about a will. First of all, that will stipulates the recipients of the inheritance. In other words, it stipulates who may inherit. That alone is very significant, isn't it? And that, again, is what prompts sometimes a great deal of interest on the part of especially the family members. They want to make sure they get their share of the person's inheritance. But have you also noticed that the will frequently will specify the conditions of that reception? Not only specifying who may inherit, but what conditions the inheritor must meet in order to inherit now, sometimes especially we see that played out in television shows and other things, but maybe we've experienced it in life 
where parents, for instance, will make a stipulation that must be true in order for a child to receive, and sometimes it has to do with age. The child has to reach a certain age before that child may inherit a certain element of the inheritance. Not only that, look at some other statements that might also be made about the will. First of all, isn't it often true we understand easily that the person making the will must be of sound mind in order to make the assertions? And isn't it true that it is upon that basis sometimes that folks in our world will contest a will? Especially if they're not happy with the share that they receive, they'll contest that they'll argue the man or woman was not in his or her right mind, or at least of sound mind, and therefore one cannot take as binding the final statements that were made. But again, we understand the needfulness of the person to be of sound mind. In the next matter, could I not suggest witnesses are needful. That is to say, those who can attest to the characteristics of the sound mind and those who can attest to the features of the declarations. Only one final thing perhaps is worthy of immediate note, and that's this. We all recognize easily that the terms of a person's will can be changed so long as the person's living. You can change your will as many times as you want while you're alive, but once you die, once life has passed from you, the will can no longer be changed. Now, that again seems so simple. I wonder what implications are in the Word of God for it. That is to say, what might we say as the Word of God reveals it that in fact has these ideas in mind even concerning the will of Jesus Christ? At this point, may I suggest that you revisit Hebrews 9, chapter 9 with me. Brother Vestal read a moment ago verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews chapter 9. But let me in fact begin reading in verse 15 and then read all the way to verse number 19. And for this cause, He, that's Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament. Now that word testament, if you're reading in a different translation, will often carry the sense of covenant. And quite frankly, we are thus talking in essence about a will. He is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Now many times in that reading the word testament appeared. And as you and I would read that, you'll notice reference was made to a New Testament, reference was made to an Old Testament, and all the correspondence leads us to appreciate our Bible so wonderfully. is something we have understood this way. There was an Old Testament, and there's a New Testament. That's the very matter we're discussing. And so when you and I approach the New Testament, it is the new will 
It's the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And therefore, much of the understanding that we have concerning the legal matters of a will today would also have some bearing on our appreciation of the nature of the New Testament will. And therefore, this Hebrew writer has led us to think about that. For that reason, I thought that we would divide our lesson in this way. Let's first talk about the First Testament. The one here the Hebrew writer mentioned in the language of verses 18 and 19. Could I again point it out to you? Whereupon neither the first testament. There was a first testament. There was in essence this initial disposition of will. On that slide you'll notice a few of the particulars that we might mention and a few verses that we'll of course understand along the way. That Old Testament as you and I appreciated of course had within it the disposition of the will of God for various groups of people. There was those that were Gentiles. There were also those that were Jews. Now the Jews, of course, were very special in that they were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob. But of course that left a lot of other people in the world and they were the non-Jews. They were in essence those that would be called the Gentiles. According to Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and following, all of those that were not Jews, those we would recognize as the Gentiles, they too, of course, served beneath a law in the effort to please the God of heaven, in the effort of what God had revealed to them. Now that patriarchal law, as we oftentimes call it, is a law that was binding for them, and it was a law that carried the stipulations of which they were expected to comply. Now, as Paul discussed it in Romans chapter 2, he pointed out that that law for them was a binding thing. And that, of course, there were many things about it that certainly could be mentioned and said. But I think it's fair to say that our interest is really that law for the people that were the Hebrews. The Mosaic law. The law of Moses, as we often call it. Now, you'll notice this reference to the First Testament was to that law. Because did you notice in verse number 19, mention was made to, of Moses, and how that the dedication of this law, which you and I would call the law of Moses, also involved blood. Could we be quick to say that law was a covenant that not only God presented to the people, but that they agreed to keep? The wording of Exodus 24 makes that as abundant as any other. In Exodus 24, verses 3 and 7, the people themselves responded to Moses and said, All that God has said will we do. They agreed to the terms of that will. They agreed to the stipulations of it. They agreed to be fully obedient and compliant with it. Maybe it is in that regard. Maybe a few more stipulations or terms of that will and that law might well be worthy of our attention. So on that slide, could we be quick to say, one of the things God was very clear is that you are to keep all the terms of this covenant. You are to obey it fully. There are no excuses. There are no loopholes. You are to keep it. Many times that statement was made. We could mention Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. We could mention even the Lord's recollection in Matthew 19. Do you remember there was an occasion when a rich young ruler came running to Jesus and said, What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus said, keep the commandments. And He listed them in order, several of the Ten Commandments. Notice the Lord's insistence, a part of what God expects of you, as He expected of all of those beneath that law, was the keeping of His commandments. But could we not go beyond that? It is fair to say that law was not perfect. That is to say, it was not without its shortcomings. Some have wondered throughout the ages, why did God ever give then a law that wasn't perfect? Well, you and I know God does all things right and He does it well. He had a reason for giving that law with the terms that it had. Galatians chapter 3 will develop at length what some of those ideas were. Maybe that's a little bit of a different lesson for us today, but suffice it to say, that old law, that first testament, was imperfect. Hebrews 7 verse 18 states that imperfection, at least for the needfulness of our lesson. And may I read verses 18 and 19 of Hebrews chapter 7. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, that's the, old, that's the first covenant, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. The Hebrew writer said it was weak. That first testament was weak. And it was unprofitable in at least one principal way. Let's read the next verse. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. So isn't it true? The Hebrew writer points out that first covenant had its flaws and it was weak. On the slide, you'll notice then the next point is this one. That covenant, that testament, looked to the day for a better one. It, in fact, prophesied and foretold that a better one was going to come. But may we not lose sight of the fact that that law was in force for 1,500 years for those people that, again, were Hebrews. But all throughout it, it looked forward to when this better law would come into place. Now today, we're going to appreciate this better law as the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. But on that slide, it's Hebrews chapter 8 that states this in such an interesting way for our consideration. Verse number 6 says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by which also he is the mediator of a better covenant. There's our word again. Which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. The Hebrew writer says, look, if that first testament had been perfect, then it would never have been superseded by a better one. It would never have been replaced by another one. For after all, you can't improve on perfection. And yet the Hebrew writer says this first testament was weak. It was inferior to the better one. And so as we approach the bottom of that slide, we now appreciate this. We've already learned that a person's will is such that there can be but one will at a time. You can't have two or more wills acting simultaneously. There is one will. So if this will, the old will, was the one that was God's dealing with men, isn't it easy to conclude that will had to be done away with before the better one could be put in place? That old law had to be removed before the new one could be instituted. We would each be in a position to ask that. So when was the first one taken out of the way, and how was it removed? Well, on the slide, I've asked you to notice. 
It's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, that continues that discussion and makes this statement. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which, is, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The Hebrew writer said that old law, by the usage of the word old, means it is to be done away with. It is to be replaced because it decays and waxes old. And it had done so. You and I thus appreciate the New Testament is in force. Again, what was that point at which it became effective? In Colossians 2.14, we are told much more detail about this. May I invite your attention to that text? As the Apostle Paul, in direction to the church at Colossae, said this, "...blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way." What's the it? The first covenant. Paul said it was taken out of the way, nailing it to his cross. It was at Calvary. It was at Golgotha. It was at the cross of Christ that that law was removed. It was taken out of the way. It was set aside in place and in the expectation of the better covenant. Now, one last thing. At the bottom of that slide might be Paul's additional discussion of that point in the second chapter of Ephesians. Paul again pointed out the removal of the old, the incoming reconciliation of the new, and again he had connected it to Jesus Christ and His death. So there's a several passages that point us to that truth, but that still doesn't answer all of our questions. For the next slide leads us into thinking about some of them as well. Without doubt, Jesus Christ is the central figure in all of Scripture. The Old Testament looked so wonderfully forward to His coming. The New Testament affirmed He did come, but also so longingly looks for His coming again. Never to this earth, but to come back to close the affairs of time and to, of course, usher in the fullness of heaven and hell. It is with that statement in mind, Jesus, while upon earth, was thus the principal figure in the construction of His last will and testament. As we noted in the Bible class this morning, the Lord only lived upon earth around a third of a century. And yet during that time, He put in place His last will and testament. It was what you and I would call that perfect, better covenant and will that we just read about in Hebrews 8. At this point, it certainly would lead us to then appreciate several things from early in the lesson need to be addressed. Was Jesus of sound mind when He constructed it? If so, then there could be no reason to contest it. There could be no reason to doubt it or to attempt to set it aside. Was the Lord of sound mind? Was Jesus a lunatic? Was He an insane person? Was He a crazy man? Although there were people who accused it of Him, it was never the truth, was it? I've asked you to look at some verses. For instance, might you note with me in Luke 3, verse 23. Now this was early in the Lord's ministry, but aren't we there reminded that the time arrived at the age of 30 when Jesus again went to be baptized of John. And then we notice that He began to preach fully cognizant of His will, of His mission, and of His reason for being here. 
Not only that, have we often not noted the logic that he utilized in the addressing of questions that were asked of him? How many times did the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or others like lawyers approach him with questions and the Lord masterfully answered those questions? And often with irresistible force and logic, pinned them, the questioner, in a position to where they had to admit the Lord was right. Now to say that is to say Jesus was of sound mind. Listen to the fullness of the logic He used in Mark chapter 8. Isn't it interesting that as He made that particular statement, we might now ask this, did the Lord have things that were to be inherited? After all, if a man has nothing to bequeath to anybody, a will is rather useless, isn't it? There's nothing for anybody to get. Jesus had a whole lot to offer. In Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, He said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Even this world pales in comparison to what the Lord was able to offer. He there asserted in light of that world to come that He had the fullness of the nature of the entirety of eternity to share, to give, to bequeath. You might notice in particular in John 10 verse 28, speaking about eternal life, He spoke that He had the power to deliver it, and He had the power to bequeath it. Eternal life, far beyond anything that you and I might ever acquire in this life which is only temporal, Jesus said, I can give you eternal life. Not only in that verse, but in John 17, 2, on the night before He was crucified, He made the rather directed statement there that He possessed the power to give eternal life to all to whom He would give it. That's a lot to offer, isn't it? Think about the capability of giving eternal life. Finally, in Titus 3.7, Paul even joined in that discussion when he affirmed to the writer Titus the nature again about eternal life which the Master is able to give. At this point, we're able to say the Lord was of sound mind and He had a great deal that could be inherited. So that, doesn't that indicate the necessity of a will, the usefulness of a will, and the placement of a will? We might ask about witnesses. We learned earlier that at least in our day, you expect the requirement of witnesses in order to declare the effectiveness and the rightfulness of a will. Did Jesus have witnesses of His will? Were there those who could testify of His sound mind and of the nature of all the stipulations the Lord had said? Absolutely. In John 16, verses 26 and 27, Jesus to the apostles said, You are witnesses. And He in fact laid upon them the understanding that they thus could testify of the nature and character of the Lord's last will and testament. And didn't they do a masterful job at that? Standing before audiences of that day and time and fully affirming, we saw the Lord, we heard His messages, and we are telling you that which He declared that we must tell. Isn't that what Peter did on Pentecost? When those Jews were assembled on that day we call the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter rehearsed to them rather interestingly and directly the entirety of his message centered on Jesus. He first spoke about 
Look, we aren't drunken like you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Acts 2, verses 16 and 17. And then he began to quote the prophecy of Joel in Joel 2, 28 to 32. And based on that, he then said this. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he went about fully cognizant of, and you saw him. It wasn't just that we saw him, you saw him. He went about performing miracles. He went about doing what was good. But you killed him. You put him to death. But God raised him up. And we are all witnesses of this. Note verses 32 and 33. We saw him. And not only that, he has delivered the prophecies of God to us. And verse number 36, Peter in conclusion said this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, based on the evidence you've seen, and the consideration of what you now know, let all the house of Israel know, Assuredly God hath made that same Jesus that you put to death, both Lord and Christ. Notice the affirmation that Peter thus made. Beyond that, on the slide, could I invite you to notice in Acts 1.8, Jesus speaking to the apostles, again reminded them, this was after His crucifixion and His resurrection, He said, you'll be witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. They were commissioned as witnesses. So, so far, the Lord is of sound mind. He had much to bequeath, and there were witnesses that were identified. We're getting closer and closer to the probation of the will. Now today, you and I appreciate, as you come to the bottom of that slide, we might thus lay a small amount of emphasis, at this point at least, on the nature of the Lord's death. He did die. That means His will could then become effective. For didn't we just read in Hebrews 9, the will is of no effect while the person's living. It's only after the person dies when that person's will becomes effective. The death of the testator had taken place. On that slide, we now appreciate several things we would anticipate. Today, after a person dies, there becomes a period of time which thus passes, and then the person's will is probated. That means there's a particular instance in which an attorney, a lawyer will thus open the contents of the will and reveal the statements that are contained therein, and thus the inheritors can then proceed with the activities of inheriting. But the probation of the will is important. When was the Lord's will probated? When, in essence, were the terms set forth and the statements therein made sure? I just noted for you Acts chapter 2. Would you revisit some of the features of that chapter with me? So you'll notice Peter and the other apostles stood up and proclaimed that day, and they proclaimed the terms of the will. This is what you had to do to inherit. This is what you had to do to receive that eternal life. Did you notice, in essence, the question that those present asked in verse 37? Right after ending the lesson, the sermon, if you please, that day, the probation of the will, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What should we do to inherit? What do we need to do to satisfy the terms of the will? We could state the matter that way. Peter responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The terms of the will had been revealed. And you'll notice as the chapter proceeds, verse 47 reminds us that the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved, those that enjoyed the reception of, of, of eternal life. Now along the way in verse 41, it was pointed out in a rather interesting way. They that gladly received His word were baptized. They accepted the terms of the will. They complied with the terms of the will. Because doesn't it quickly say, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The will had been probated. Its terms, in essence, had been revealed and set forth. And so on the slide, you'll notice the heirs had now been named. Who can inherit eternal life? Who can inherit from the Lord? Well, Jesus had often, in fact, spoken about this, and of course the apostles just reaffirmed it that day. Hadn't Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The terms of the will included belief in the Lord, absolute conviction that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah. That's one of the terms that had to be met. Did you notice on Pentecost, the 3,000 met the terms. They were pricked in their heart, the text says to us. They were bothered by what they had just heard, and it disturbed them so they believed who Jesus was. They were convicted they'd put Him to death. But you'll notice that the terms of that didn't just include belief. In the naming of those heirs, in John 1 verse 12, John three sixteen, and otherwise, we now appreciably, appreciably understand Obedience to the terms of the will absolutely were required. Hebrews 5.8 would say it like this, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. You must obey him in order to inherit. So it doesn't just include belief. It includes the other things that the Lord had revealed and stated. And as those terms were specified, we understand that that included repentance, it included confession and baptism, and included a faithfulness in life to the commandments of the Lord. The terms of the will had been set forth. May I suggest the New Testament is His active last will and testament. You'll notice it can never be changed. Once a person dies, the will can never be changed. So this will last perpetually. Men can never hope to change it, to in some way call it into question. So this next slide will basically present us some final thoughts about the probation and the execution of the Lord's will. At the top of that slide, it is absolutely true that while Jesus lived, He retained absolute right to change the will. That's not surprising. We don't have any problem understanding that. A person can change his will up until the time he or she dies. Jesus could have changed the will before He died. And He had right to express to anybody He wanted exceptions to the terms which would later be true. But you and I know full well that once He died, the terms could not be changed. And in order to inherit, one must comply 
with the terms of the will. Now that again seems so simple, but in many ways yet so profound. Because today there are many who try to contest the Lord's will. Aren't you shocked by that, to at least hear it that way? There are so many today who claim you do not have to be baptized. Really? The Lord's will said you do. And for you to have any hope of contesting that, you would have to prove the Lord was not of sound mind. You don't have a chance. There's no way from the New Testament you can prove Jesus was not of sound mind. And yet to claim that you don't have to be baptized, or to claim that any other elements that He specified are not true, it's a hopeless case. So on that slide, might you again revisit Hebrews chapter 9 with me. And listen to the force of verses 16 and 17 one more time. And when you hear the word testator, again, think about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 presents it again like this. For where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Jesus had spoken every, or rather when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the New Testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Now listen to Christ. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that He should offer Himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now... Once in the end of the world, He hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The testator has died. His will is now in force. We cannot contest it. There's no reason to try. This last will and testament, of course, has within it the things that you and I have so often lovingly encouraged, obedience to the gospel and faithfulness to it. As we close this lesson... We've highlighted today, then, several things in relation to the Lord's last will and testament and the typical dealings of an attorney with a person's will today. First, the Lord's will was composed by Him. You'll notice furthermore that He was of sound mind and it was affirmed by witnesses. Perhaps finally we could say, it became effective since He's now dead. And it became effective in that that first covenant was nailed to the cross. And on Pentecost, the New Testament was probated. The terms were set forth. Today, as you and I think about the character of some of the thoughts we've learned about today, we've been reminded that this will, 
contains within it the, the provisions for inheriting all of eternity, eternal life. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we so greatly desire? If it is, we have to comply with the terms of this will. If you've never become a Christian today, it's time to appreciate the will contains this stipulation. In order to inherit eternal life, you must do this. Believe in Jesus, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. Confess the name of Christ as the Son of God, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38, Galatians 3, 26 and following. And live faithfully until death, Revelation 2, verse 10. Now again, if we come to a point in life that we have been a, an inheritor, but we've chosen for some reason to take our name off the list of inheritance, to have our name taken out of the Lamb's book of life, in the words of Revelation 20, as tragic and as very unwise as that is, we can have Him put our name back on the list. We've got to come back to our first love. We must again be reinstated as an inheritor based on the terms of the will. To do that, we have to repent of those sins. And we have to make confession of them to Him. That's stated for us in 1 John 1 verses 8 and following. And it's highlighted in the wording of Acts chapter 8 verses 20 and following. Today, if we could be of some assistance to, to someone in this assembly... Maybe you've reached a point where though once an inheritor, you have given it up. Won't you come back to your rightful place as a child of God? We'd be honored to pray on your behalf and to make acknowledgement of your repentance. And as we in fact make that prayer, He'll reinstate you as an inheritor and put your name back in the Lamb's book of life. We'd be delighted to assist and help in any way we can. Won't you let us know how we might do that while together we stand and while we sing?